You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Ever since his lead role in B-Movie, the 2015 documentary about the Berlin music scene between 1989 and 1999, Mark Reeder has been the go-to man for information about all things music in Berlin pre- and post-fall of the Berlin Wall. Born in Manchester in the UK, he moved to Berlin in 1978, leaving behind a burgeoning music scene in his hometown that he had started to become a part of. But it was in Berlin where Mark thrived. Here the musician and producer tells his story and provides a fascinating insight into Berlin and its music scene pre- and post-fall of the Berlin Wall. So, Mark, welcome. Last time we saw each other, I think, was in 2020 at the World Peace Day in Berlin. And it seems... 2019 it was, actually. Was it 2019? Yeah, it seems quite a while ago. I mean, a lot lot has happened between then. Obviously, COVID and then uh, Russia's illegal invasion into Ukraine. Mm. And the world um, has changed quite significantly. And I want to come back to that later because there is a feeling that a new cold war is here or coming or it's definitely you know on we're on the doorstep of it um which may change um not only our view of the world but also it may change creativity and music like the first cold war had a very big impact so I, i want to come to that um a bit later but we have a lot of similarities in terms of that we're both British originally. Um, We both up and left and came to Germany. I presume we both got dual citizenship now. Yes. (laughs) And quite happy about it. (laughs) Yeah. And um, we also had that experience of moving and going to another country, which I believe has uh, a great impact on your psyche and changes you to Mm. a certain extent. Um, But I want to start with not particularly like just looking back at your childhood, but I know and I've seen in other shows that you've got pictures of you when you were very young in Manchester. And Mm. I just wondered what goes through your head when you look at a picture of you at a very young age in a different society to where you are now as a different person in a lot of ways Mm. to who you are now. So what do you see when you see a picture of you when you were young? Um... Well, I usually can remember quite a bit about when the situation that the photograph was taken or, or you know, I mean, as a small child, like a sort of seven-year-old or whatever, I was on telly for, there's a, a program which, um, for Granada Television, which was made about our school, St. Mary's in Horton Green. And the kid who's speaking on this program, it's not me, you know. What I mean, it's like, it's like, who's this kid? You know, uh, uh, it's quite weird. Um, but most of the time, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not so nostalgic, really. So I don't kind of like dwell on, on, on the situation. But um, yeah, back then, I think I had a very different vision of what the future was going to be. As a very small child, you know, I thought we were going to be like in the Jetsons, flying, like riding around in flying cars and stuff like that, and have robots ser- serving us. Um, but as, a, as, a, as, a, as I got older, I realised that wasn't the future. And, um, and, I, and I just wanted to see what the rest of the world had to, had to offer, really, or the rest of Europe, at least, you know. And, and so coming to Germany was one thing which 
it's just it's just out of curiosity more than anything else. And and when I look at the two the two sort of me's, you know, it's like the, it was the me that could have gone gone on to. I could have been just a graphic designer working in a in a, in an agency, slogging my guts out for nothing, you know, and 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 all these horrible people around me kind of like backbiting each other. That's what, what the advertising world seemed to be like for me. Um, and 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 I was kind of like. I didn't, I didn't want to work in a factory, to be sure, to be honest. You know, I didn't want to work in a steelworks or something like that. So in, in where I grew up, we had it like um, clothing manufacturers and hat producers and stuff like this, and you know, so textiles industry. And I wasn't interested in going into that either. And so, and so that that could have been my future. You know, that could have very well been my future. But I decided to to try something else instead and see what else was on offer. When I look back, I look back at certain aspects of my life during the, I mean, I was, I'm, I think I'm uh, one year younger than you. So we're effectively the same age. So we grew up in the same era. And when I look back, I look back at a period of, of great unhappiness and feeling very distant to mm. everything that was around me. And every bit of music that I liked at that period was about going into another world, like leaving this world and going into another, like liking Bowie as this sort yeah, of yeah. alien from another world and me wanting to leave where I was from to go somewhere else, wherever that would have been. And, and I just wondered whether you, because a lot was happening in your life in, in, in Manchester uh, before you actually left for Germany, you know, the second time yeah. as it were, but a lot was happening in your life. And, um, for me, it was more about escaping my old life. So whenever I sort of look at your story, I look at it and think you had a lot of opportunities in Manchester, but you left those opportunities. And I wonder whether it was a, a feeling of disconnect and you just wanted to get away and discover yourself. I didn't know this at the time. You know, I didn't know that that was a possibility at the time to discover myself because I didn't I didn't think about that. Um, you know, growing up growing up in 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 miserable Manchester during the seventies was really kind of very trying. You know, and and being as a kid, you know, at school being bullied and stuff like that was was one of these things which kind of like really maybe just want to escape and get away and go somewhere else where I didn't have to deal with that kind of situation. Working in, in Virgin Records in Manchester opened up completely different opportunities, really, because I got to see loads of gigs for free and I got loads of records for free and things like that. And I was able to manipulate people's tastes in music by the records that I chose to play them and stuff. But even that was not, it wasn't, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough excitement. It wasn't enough uh, of a challenge. You know, it just it was just an on an everyday ongoing thing, and as uh, you know, the music scene was kind of developing to this punk rock thing in the in the mid seventies. You know, it's exciting and thrilling and stuff. But by nineteen seventy eight, I thought, you know, I'd had enough. Really, it had become. You know, I thought that the the punk idea and the and had kind of washed itself out and become sampler and pomoir. And I was like, I didn't really like that. I thought that was that that was kind of like selling itself a little bit too cheaply and a bit too quickly. And so I, I thought I'll go and have a, have a chance and look around elsewhere, really, you know. I mean, there was a nihilism to the, to the 70s, obviously, in, in, in Britain. The nihilism was uh, a lot to do with the 
society in terms of that growing up in that era, you did feel that you didn't really have much of a future because it was massive unemployment. <laughs> there was yeah. a, a lot of social unrest and so on and so forth. And yet you go to a city eventually, you go to Berlin, which is a city almost exists in a sort of nihilistic sphere as a sort of island within East Germany, an yeah. island of West Germany within East Germany at that time. Um, when you got to Berlin, how did you initially feel? Was there a fear of being in this new place or was it an, an instant excitement? Oh, it was instant excitement. It wasn't, it was not, not I hadn't, I didn't have any, any fear about Germany because I'd, had the opportunity to go to Germany in 1976 and for the first time. And, and I realised like this myth that we'd been told at school and my, that, that my parents believed, you know, from my entire school life was that the Germans were all evil, you know, and that, um, you know, G Germany was not the place where you need to go, uh, you know, to go there and find out that this was completely untrue, just threw everything out of the window, really. It made me question a, a reality that I'd believed in the UK and suddenly, you know, I, I saw the reality that it wasn't true. So, so, so going to Berlin was all, was, was all about excitement, really. It was not about, you know, fear. Not even, you know, where, where it was in the middle of East Germany was kind of like scary, you know, going, having to go to East, through East Germany to get to Berlin was quite scary in its, in its sense, but it was also thrilling as well. It had this kind of like allure to it, which I, I was, this adrenaline feeling that you get from this kind of situation just really addicted, made me addicted to it, really. Yeah. I, I didn't mean fear in terms of Germans. I meant fear in terms of the Cold War. But, I mean, I was, I was my father uh, had a, a German guy that worked for him. So we had uh, a friend in the family who was German. Mm. And... Uh, I think I was lucky in that way. So my perspective in that era, and I know what you're saying, because generally in British society, particularly of that era, um, it was incredibly isolationist and also very held over from the Second World War. Mm. Um, but this island uh, that Berlin was, was an mm. island that sort of uh, became very special because if you wanted to get out of the Bundeswehr, the German army, um, you just had to register that you lived in Berlin and you went and lived in Berlin as a young German. So it meant it attracted lots of young people and the type of young people that went were anti-war, anti-army, probably also a lot of anti-authoritarian people. So you went into this sort of bubble of society which had this energy to it. Um, were you aware of that energy when you first got there and how and and how did you perceive it in terms of where you came from? What were the differences? Well, I had absolutely really not really much of an idea of what Berlin was going to be like at all. You know, I mean, I'd seen it on in in, in portrayed in movies like, you know, the spy came from the cold or, you know, it, uh, the funeral in Berlin or something like that. But I had no real kind of idea what it actually looked like or what it was, what it meant. And, you know, Bowie had kind of made, you know, lone heroes here. That was all I really knew. So to uh, arrive in Berlin and then discover that it was, a t there was a totally different kind of normality here. Now, the next day when I arrived, I went to get some change for the phone to call my mum. <laughs> and I went to this bar on the end of the street and, they were, and it was, 
the person behind the bar was a transvestite, you know, bright orange hair and a polka dot top. Yes, darling, what do you want? You know, I was like, wow, this is normality. It was complete. It was completely. And I realized at that moment, you know, this, the, the, the Berlin of kind of like this cabaret I, in my image of Berlin was, was real in a certain, in a different way. You know, it was like, it was like, like everybody was accepted and acceptable. And it didn't matter where you came from because look, most of the people here were all washed ups from West Germany. Like you said, you know, they were all draft dodgers and, you know, gay men and pacifists and atom craft nine danker types, you know, and anyone who just didn't want to go and serve in the military were here surrounded by the military, um, protected by the military. And that was kind of like this strange ambiguity. I, I, I was really fascinated by it. Yeah. And, and, and the, fact, the fact that people just kind of accepted you, regardless of where you came from or what your background was, I, th I thought that was very refreshing. You know? Were you not concerned that you'd left something behind to the extent, you know, you were in the frantic elevators, which was with uh, an, the early band with Mick Hucknall. Yeah. Uh, you had... Uh, contact to Tony Wilson, which I know sort of helped you out in terms of uh, your uh, being initial being in Berlin, um, Ian Curtis. So your your connections were incredibly strong, probably in terms of the future rather than in terms of that time at that moment in time. But yeah. were you when were you aware that you'd actually left something behind, and did that have an impact on you at all? Well, I never got that feeling, to be honest. I wasn't, I never thought I'd left something behind because, you know, Rob Gretton was really enthusiastic when, when I said I was going to Germany because I think he obviously thought, oh, is somebody going to be actually in the country? He'll be able to maybe help us get a gig or something like that. So, so, and Ian was fascinated by the idea that I was going to Berlin as well. So it was, I, di I didn't feel I was being discouraged. Only Mick was a bit discouraging. You know, he was, he was a bit upset that I was leaving the band to go to, to, you know, enemy territory, so to speak. But um, everybody kind of accepted it because they realised that I wasn't happy in, in Manchester, and it wasn't. And I didn't. I didn't myself. I didn't see a future for myself because, you know, the the people from Virgin Records that was working in the Virgin small Virgin Records shop in Manchester, they they came to me and said, "Yes, we're going to be opening up this brand new mega store." And I was like, "What's a mega store?" They went, well, it's like a supermarket for records. And I just had this idea, you know, this vision of like me, you know, people walking around with shopping trolleys, you know, putting Fleetwood Mac and Re Eagles records in it. And I was like, I don't want to work in a supermarket. I might as well work in Tesco's. I'm not, I don't want to do that. And so, so to actually leave and uproot was something quite kind of easy, really, in a sense. I didn't feel like I was leaving anything behind. And, and, and when I got here and then eventually, when I got here, there wasn't any kind of scene, so to speak. You know, it wasn't really kind of like, punk rock central in berlin you know it was there was one small place called punk house in near adenauer platz that had like a, it was like punk, a punk cafe kind of thing but other than that there was nothing much really going on here it was still kind of like everyone was still into deep purple and pink floyd and it was like okay you know it's a it's a different scene a different feeling but by 1980 everything had changed it become this it had developed its own kind of new wave scene which was completely different to the scene that I'd experienced in Manchester. You know, like being in, being in Manchester, people, you know, they formed bands so they could escape from the misery of Manchester. You know, like hopefully somebody might discover them and with their dull money, they bought guitars and thrashed out kind of like, you know, 
politically themed songs and stuff about living in life in the UK at that period in time. But in Berlin, everybody had already escaped. So there was no real reason for them to kind of do that. So they, so they just invented it themselves. They invented their own version of what they thought was a was a new wave really and i thought i thought that was really exciting it was much more much much more thrilling and different than 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 this um desire to become a pop star which was i thought everybody wanted to be in in, in the uk everyone wanted to be on the top of the on top of the pops you know you're listening to pop the history makers with me steve blame what I feel of that era in in Berlin, it was almost a reflection of the punk era in Britain, where it was uh, it was more um, easy to just make music with your friends and do what you wanted to do without any feeling you were trying to be successful or you were trying to actually create create something um, for a career or something like that. It was just about having fun and developing stuff. Yeah, um, being arty, being arty, you know, like because it was very artistic, everything. It, was, it wasn't, it wasn't like the music wasn't geared towards being a pop song and being on the radio or anything like that. The music was made as a, as a form of expression, as, a, as an art form. And when you look at bands like, you know, the Turtle or or Anschluss de Neubauten and Malaria, three kind of like mainstays of that, of that era, you know, their music has stood the test of time because it doesn't kind of fall into any conformity of such, you know, like, like, like you know, it's, it's new and different, but it's still new and different. I mean, these are all, all uh, people that you were very closely in, in, involved in. Um, yeah. The... I just want, I'll come to that in a second, but I just want to get a feeling of this, uh, whether there was some form of nihilistic uh, attitude in Berlin at that time, and whether that was a reflection of, you know, the 80s, the early 80s were the height of the Cold War, mm. um, and whether this nihilistic attitude, if it existed, was a reflection of that, because it was really, and Berlin has always been sort of party till you drop type idea, it's, you know, there's never been a limit on what you can do in Berlin. Well, well the, the thing that was the, the, the key, the key actually to the city, and still is the key to the city, is the fact that Berlin is open 24 hours a day and that you could drink from dusk till dawn every day, you know. Um, and being open 24 hours a day just opened itself to, to being able to party all day and all night and all day and all night until you dropped. Um and the and the feeling of this city that which was which was east and west it was capitalism versus communism in one place it was you know eastern army versus western armies you know like in one place uh, you know people never talked about really the, the normal everyday person on the street never really talked about you know the third world war that it would happen in berlin but in in films and in books it was always portrayed as being the place where a third world war would kick off between the forces of east and west on the border of east berlin and west berlin i, I never felt like that once i got here i thought i felt very very safe here although my my german friends they, they were from west germany they they all thought it was going to end here you know this was the place where it was all going to kick off and we'd all die and it could all happen tomorrow so 
sod it let's do what we want you know let's just do everything we want to do and do it now because like next week it might all be over and that was the attitude that everybody took and I just went with that because it sounded quite interesting <laughs> you know it sounded yeah right of course we could all die some more so how connected were West Germans in Berlin to East Germans in Berlin? Because even in uh, an earlier period, you could go and visit, couldn't you? You could go over and, and mm. take a look. And, you know, you did many times. Yes, I did, yeah. Uh, my, my, my friends here, my West German friends, and who had all kind of washed up in Berlin, almost hardly any of them went, went to East Berlin. Yeah, they, it, Germans only went to East Berlin if they had relatives usually, or if they had to go to say a concentration camp with the school or something like that, they don't, then they'd go to East Berlin. But generally, you know, they, they only ever went once in their life as school kids usually and hated it and then came back and had nothing positive to say about East Berlin. Um, whereas I, you know, having no family members in, in East Germany, you know, looked at it with different eyes. And so, so I went over there with a completely different viewpoint of what East Germany and what East Germans were like. And I found it quite fascinating because it was like they've, you know, you just meet someone in a cafe and just start chatting to them and they're fascinated because you're from England and it's like they're never, ever going to meet someone from England just on just by chance, you know. They see soldiers walking around shopping but they're not going to speak to them because they're not allowed to speak to them. But to sit in a cafe and speak to someone, have this opportunity to find out what's it like, what's the West really like, you know, um, that was quite, quite thrilling for me. It was like interesting because, because, because the, these people had no information. It wasn't like today where you've got the internet, you know, they had, they had no information. They could only watch what was happening on West German television. And that was the only insight into the, into the West. And, and, you know, they had a, they had dreams and desires you know everyone you met always wanted no oh, i'd love to go to paris and see paris i'd love to go to italy and see rome you know I'd love to go to london you know they, they had these dreams but they knew that these dreams were never ever going to be fulfilled and what I were their ideas of your life what were their ideas of what sort of life you must have come from oh they all thought i lived in a mansion they all thought I lived in a mansion and had a Rolls Royce. You know what I mean? It was like they all thought I lived in a luxury in a luxury apartment and everything was fantastic and I had you know like everything that I wanted and desired and I could travel wherever I liked. And I tried to explain to them like you can only travel to places if you've got bloody money. You know, so I tried to explain to them my flat was a twenty-two square meter hovel in the back half of a house with an outside toilet and no shower. You know, they had no idea about you know that that they why they didn't believe me. They didn't, they didn't believe me at all, you know. They thought I lived in a mansion. Was the first time you went to, to East Berlin to the May Day uh, official parade, or was that, did that come later? Was that oh, that was later. Time? That was much later. The May Day okay. parade was much, much, much later. Um, that was 82. I was, you know, I'd, I'd arrived in 1978, and, and, I, and the, like, after being here for three days, I went to East Berlin. It was like, I, I, trying to find, I was trying to find out how to get to East Berlin. No, no one knew how to go to East Berlin because they'd never been there. So they, they kept telling me, oh, you can't go, you can't go. And then by chance, I just like, went, I went to Checkpoint Charlie and, went and, and discovered I could just walk over and I went. And it was fascinating. It was like, it was like science fiction come real. You know, it was like being beamed down into another planet that resembled our planet, but which was totally different, <laughs> with you know loads of soldiers everywhere. And it was like going back to the fifties in a strange, weird way. You know, it's like it's like fifties world 
in a certain aspect. You know, like everyone was in uniform, every single person, you know, the shopkeepers, the soldiers, everybody, bus drivers, everybody. And um, yeah, it was just it was just a fascinating kind of a insight into this kind of easty world. And it didn't feel threatening in any way. I felt quite quite relaxed there. You know, there was no advertising. There were hardly any cars. And the people kind of looked similar. They, well, you know, like I, I'd, I'd imagined everyone to look grey and miserable, but they looked kind of happy. And, and I went to Alexander Platz. It was a beautiful sunny day. And it was like, you know, fountains and kids playing and grannies, you know, sitting in the park and stuff. And it was just very peaceful. And I thought, oh, I like it here. It's quite nice. <laughs> I wouldn't want to live there. You know, but I, but I thought I'd go there and check it out a bit more, and I, and I found out that the this place where I went to have my dinner in, which was like it was like school dinners. Yeah, it was like it was like these dinner ladies ladling out slops for these people, you know, for the lunch. That I discovered that that in the evening that's a discotheque. So I, so I waited until the evening to around about eight o'clock, and then I went back to Alexander Platz under the TV tower. I went to this discotheque, SB Disco, which was just really provisional. It was like some you know bloke with two cassette players, you know, playing music and car headlamps as lights, the lights. You know, it was very, it was very, very simple. But but you know, it was like it was like an insight into this kind of like East German life. And so I went there like really a lot. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. How did you actually move into uh, being involved in the music scene and making music in, in Berlin? Well, it was never an intention to actually be in a band. After being in the Frantic Elevators, I thought I don't want to do it anymore, really. Um, and... and just coming here, you know, Mick and, and, and Rob Gretton, they're both like, oh, yeah, well, now you're there. Maybe you can get some gigs in, in Berlin. <laughs> you're obviously going to be going out, you know. So, so, so it was like, it was just that connection. It was like, you know, possibly there's an, there's an opportunity maybe. But, you know, Rob had sent us, when they started Factory, they started, started sending me Factory Records. So they already started, it's already sent me the, the ideal for living 12-inch that it had repressed, you know, like, can you send that to the radio stations and maybe we'll get some, some, some coverage of some kind. Not, no one was interested at all, you know. No one was interested in this miserable band from Manchester. And so, so it just, just like just like floundered really, and and going out. I think I think a lot of people thought because I worked for Factory in their eyes, they had this vision of me kind of working for this for this fantastic record company. They had no idea of the, the chaos behind this record company. Um, they, you know, they, they obviously thought that maybe I was their stepping stone to a, to a, getting a record deal or whatever. So I was embraced and accepted everywhere in all the bars and all the clubs and everything. And I got for free and I never paid for a drink ever and it was kind of you know quite nice I wasn't I wasn't going to complain to that um and then it, being drunk one night you know like it was there was the last the last night of excess it was this club in Schoenberg um near the, near the barn up near barn of Sioux, and it was like this it was their last night it was kind of like three nights of of, of the club and uh, one of the the promoter came to me and said, oh, you've, you know, I know you've got a guitar, you know, like could, a band's, they've decided they can't play. So could you, could you go home and get your guitar and fill in? And being very drunk and drugged at the time, I just kind of, went, yeah, of course, and went home and got my guitar and, and did this impromptu set with uh, Adrian Wright from the Human League and, an, and another friend from America. And it was, it was pretty dreadful. And, um, and I thought, I'll never do that again. And then I went to this L36 a couple of months later and uh, 
and it was saying, "Oh, can you can you can you fill in for 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 this band that that, that are not going to play?" And I was like, "Okay." And, and it was with Christoph Hahn who plays for the, was the guitarist of the Swans. And he's like, "Yes, we'll, we'll we'll form a band." So we formed this band, did this one gig, never again. We'll never do that ever again. And then, "Oh, can you do it? Can you do it on the seventeenth of June?" And I was like, I don't have a band. And I agreed because I was drunk and drugged at the time, you know. So I agreed foolishly. And, uh, and then I realized the next day, oh, what have I done? And so I asked a, another expat friend who'd been washed up here, this guy called Alistair, who I knew. Um, I said, hey, Alistair, can you, can you sing? And he's like, Strangers in the Night. I went, oh, brilliant. We've got a gig next Wednesday. Come round to our house and I'll show you how to play guitar. And so he came round to my flat and we, we, made, we wrote a couple of songs in, in, my, in my room, you know, for... For, for this gig and then we did this gig and we thought we'll never ever do that ever again it was a complete disaster right a total total nightmare we were so we, we'd been we'd been waiting for a sound check all afternoon in the in franken in the pub across from sl36 yeah and we got completely plastered by this point we came to get on the stage and all our guitars had gone out of tune in the meantime and we thought we're never going to do that again and, and the minute we got off stage this girl who we knew elizabeth who had a record label called monogam she released like P1A and Neubaut and, and stuff. She comes running up. She goes, "Oh, that was brilliant! I want to make a record with you." And it kind of just spiraled out of control from that point on. I mean, Berlin was a sort of—I um, don't know whether this is a really positive way of saying it—but it feels like the music scene was almost like a swinging scene. You know, like everyone in every band played it with was, everyone in everyone else's band. It was. It was. It was almost <laughs> like that. Yeah. It was. It was like well, there weren't, there weren't that many people in this scene. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like there were like thousands and thousands of people involved. It was like the scene was a hand, literally a handful of people. And it's like whoever you whoever you got pissed with the night before kind of <laughs> ended up being in their band for an, for a gig, you know, and it, and it, that, that kept it kind of vibrant and 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 ever developing, you know. Everybody like literally everybody played at least once in somebody else's band almost, or, or worked with them in some capacity, you know. Like I did the sound for Nolly Bolton for a couple of gigs, like documenter and stuff, and 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 you know, and I was the sound engineer for Malaria, and you know, and all these different different things that just kind of just all happened together because we we're just very very small scene. That's really the reason why. So, how important was that period of of your life? in terms of developing the skills that you're able to use today? Well, I, felt, I, think, I think, you know, like I've kind of done virtually every job that possibly is in the music business up at that point, you know, like I've worked in a record shop, I've been in a band, you know, um, I've become the sound engineer and the manager and, you know, I've done all these different things and, and, and I've got an insight into how, the business on that side on each side of these like sections how they all worked and 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 i kind of like thought i don't want it to be like that i don't want it to be like that you know and and i never kind of had any aspirations to be a pop star or anything like that that was like you know my mates were all pop stars you know they'd all be they'd all attained kind of like notoriety you know we've been on top of the pops and stuff like that and that's fine I was, I'm, I'm happy with that you know that they, that they managed they became successful I was really proud of my friends that they'd attained that you know they'd stuck with it and become you know stars but that wasn't really the thing that I was chasing I, you know I didn't want that wasn't really important for me I didn't make music really to 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 become famous you know I made music because I, I enjoyed making music I like to be creative um 
and the, and and the, all these all these kind of sections really kind of just like led me to a point um, whereby you know like I've been inspired by people like Daniel Miller and by Tony Wilson and their and their approach towards like running a record label and signing bands and the kind of bands that they wanted to have on the label and stuff like that. I've been really inspired by that. I've been inspired by Malcolm Garrett and, and, and Peter Saville and the, and the design of the, of the artwork of record covers and things. So, so, you know, having known these people, I kind of brought that to myself here in Berlin and kind of used the same, the same kind of attitude and the same kind of like vision or whatever at the point when I actually come to um, forming my own record label in uh, 1990. Um, and, then, and, and then it was then I took on a different role within this music business. I became the record label owner stroke manager, which I actually didn't like the idea of because I thought, you know, the people who kind of run these record labels usually are complete the uh, self-centered narcissists or whatever. And I, and I didn't really want to have that sort of image really. Um, and uh, so I try, I try to run my label in, in, in a more kind of sort of a, a mixture of Tony Wilson and, and Daniel Miller, really. Just want to um, go back a bit again, because obviously we're going to come to, uh, um, you know, this era a little bit later. But you mentioned the fact that you were a, a bridge to a certain extent, but you were a bridge in a sense both ways, weren't you? You were, you were a bridge of the culture between uh, Britain and Germany not just for mm. factory artists in Berlin, mm. but and yeah. and you became a bridge for uh, German artists in in essence to to Britain. And I think this was particularly highlighted when you eventually uh, did that piece for the Tube when you worked mm. for Mal Malcolm Geary. How did they approach you, and why uh, did they come to you? What was that particular reason? Um, it's all Chris Bond's fault. Chris Bond, who was Bieber Kopf, who wrote for the NME, they 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 asked him, you know, because he'd written about like Neubauten and these kind of like the Berlin Krankheit music scene, you know, he'd written about this in the NME, and so they asked him, you know, if he would do this program, the Tube, and he politely declined and suggested that they contact me because I'm the Brit living in Berlin, and so. That's exactly what they did. They contacted me and asked me if I would be willing to help them put a program together for the tube. Now, it really meant, would you do this program for us? Because I ended up doing everything for them, yeah. Pre preparing everything, getting all the equipment, getting all the permission, which was a, night a nightmare, you know, getting, getting the permission from the US forces, from British forces yeah, to, to be able to film in their sectors you couldn't just go on the street with a camera and film willy-nilly you couldn't just get you know have, do an interview on the street willy-nilly you had to get permission to be able to stand on the street and do an interview no matter what so i got all this in this, this 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 permission and i got the the equipment and everything and then then they came to berlin and we, we did this program but at the same time i'm saying to them we if we do this program we can't just do west berlin because Berlin is not just West Berlin. Berlin is also East Berlin as well. And they were like, well, how are we going to, how are we going to do that? You know, it, it, it was it just that no one had ever done anything like it. No, no one had even attempted to do anything like it. And so they were completely like, do you think you can pull this off? 
you know, and well, I said, well, I'll go, I'll find out, you know, I'm f- I'll find a band. They wanted a, they wanted a punk band. I'm like, so I tried to explain to them, well, punk doesn't officially exist in the GDR. The, 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 so if you're a punk in the GDR, you go to prison, basically. So they're not going to, you know, fall head over heels to get a punk band on British television because that doesn't represent what East Germany is trying to represent. You know, they want to have, you know, nice, clean cut kids, you know, showing how nice East Germany is. So, so, so I said, we'll have to try and find something else. And I, by chance, found this band walking down the street, literally, you know, um, they were called Jessica. And they, never, they, they didn't have any permission at all to even own instruments, let alone play in front of an audience, but they looked the part and their music was kind of like, like the police. And so it was like, it was like safe, you know, and so I managed to talk the authorities into putting this unknown band who were not registered with them onto British television. And um, at that point, you know, these Germans kind of, they, they were only interested in getting the Western currency off us, really. They, 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 they cost a fortune, cost Granada, Time T's television, it was, cost them a fortune to put this, to do, put this program in East Berlin together, probably double what West Berlin cost. But uh, we come to this point where, the East Germans suddenly realized like a week before we're about to air the, the program that they had to, they had to put Jessica on the telly in East Germany first. So they could say that they had discovered them because they, they couldn't let us as Brits put this East German band on TV and say, we discovered them. But in reality, that's what happened. We, you know, discovered this band and put them on. And it was like, it, it changed their lives in East Germany. It also changed the way the East Germans thought, you know, the authorities thought, I think, and and it, and it it was a bit of like a bit of a thorn of the Cold War at that moment, you know, like like we thought we were able to bring East and West together through music, and that was something which was I thought was really, you know, really important. You know, the fact that we'd done this, we'd managed to pull it off, you know, that I thought that was really important. That was part one of the interview with Mark Reader. In part two, Mark continues his story and how he effectively was not only a bridge between the then West Berlin and the British music scene of the 80s, but also between West and East Berlin, and how the music producer, who has influenced and helped many careers, has become a respected artist in his own right. (laughs) 